Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. Uh, and once again, we're, we both uh, have very little <laughs> to talk about. I've watched I've watched some things that I'm not talking about because, like I said, I'm doing research for an uh, upcoming episode. Um, but mostly I've, I've been watching stuff that is going to be uh, or or virtual cinema new releases in the sure. next uh a few weeks so i'll just get started um i uh i'd like to say i did it intentionally but mostly uh coincidentally on cinco de mayo i watched a documentary about uh a an english chef named chef and, and sorry an english cookbook writer she's not never worked as a chef english what was, cookbook her, what writer was her name again there was a bit of a bit of a thing there diana kennedy uh, the documentary is called Diana Kennedy. Nothing fancy. Sorry, there is a G. It's nothing fancy. I just okay. that's how I talk. <laughs> nothing fancy. But she is. Um, I f- well, here's what I'm. The way I would phrase it is that what Julia Child was for French cooking to the English speaking world. Okay, Diana Kennedy is. She's like still alive, and she's like 97 at this point. Is to Mexican cooking in the English world. She's a, an English woman who met uh, uh, her husband while on vacation uh, in Haiti in the 50s, and his work writing for the New York Times caused him to relocate to Mexico. She moved with him, lived in Mexico for about a little under a decade, and then moved back. And after her husband passed away at a fairly young age of, of cancer, um, and she had a uh, deal to write a Mexican cookbook. She went back to Mexico and toured it for a while and eventually moved there and has lived in Mexico full time since the mid to late 1970s. Uh, and she's now, like I said, 97. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, um, the way I phrased it, I was very, very careful with how I compared her to Julia Child and what she represents for Mexican cooking because what other people say and what I think this documentary kind of contends with, and I'm not sure it's, it's fully on the ball is other people say things like, Oh, she's the Mexican Julia child. But it's like, well, she's not a Mexican. Right. Yes. <laughs> she's okay. from England. <laughs> um, and so there is a lot of people being like, Oh, she did. Th- th- I think there's a, there's a fine line. Someone, uh, I think like, doing what I think uh, Anthony Bourdain did with his, with his shows is being like, yes, I'm from the West. I'm a, a white man. I'm not coming to this show. I'm not coming to this country in order to turn around to the camera and say, Hey, look what I've discovered and position myself as an expert. Sure. And I think Diane in the movie itself kind of walks a fine line. It positions her as an expert. There's, there's something, I don't know if the movie realizes it. There's something kind of dark, like, sardonically funny about her appearing on the Martha Stewart show and like teaching Martha Stewart and Martha Stewart's viewers how to make authentic tamales, you know, like Martha Stewart and this woman with this like accent, like it's a weird pair to be like, this is the right way to make tamales. But then there's also other things where, um, in, 
in her cookbooks because she uh one thing she doesn't do is she doesn't do fusion or she doesn't do like this is my take on pozole right. or whatever she does she only does authentic uh uh recipes that she traveled the world and got in person from uh a lot of times mexican home cooks and in her cookbooks she includes the name of the the, the woman usually woman who taught her how to make uh uh these things so i think i i found a lot of uh going back and forth i feel like the movie while i was watching it I, the movie I, I think doesn't seem to want to contend with the thornier parts of uh, uh of sort of uh, uh representation or maybe appropriate you know and where diana kennedy does and doesn't fall into that mm-hmm. um on the other hand as just a piece of like biodoc like portraiture it's a lot of fun because she's a real character like she is i don't know if she was like this her whole life but she's gotten to the point where she in the late 90s and uh she's very set in her ways and is very dismissive of people who don't do things her ways there's the one because she she had a pbs cooking show uh or maybe bbc and they heard of pbs again i don't remember uh but there's one like modern day sort of cooking segment of her just here's how you make guacamole the right way and half of what she's saying is dismissing people who make it the wrong way <laughs> you know she's like she's like she's like roughly chop your onions people mince them and they leave all the flavor on the cutting board and then she's like uh she's like use serrano chilies keep your hands off the jalapenos don't de-seed people anyone who takes you to tells you to take the seeds out of a serrano chili well they're not a very good cook Um, uh, my wife watched some of it with me and she was like this lady's a jerk Um, uh, and then there's a part uh, later in the movie where she uh, comes to uh, I can't remember if it's New York or Los Angeles where she she wins a James Beard Award. Do you watch enough Food Network to know what a James Beard Award is, no. Tyler? Okay. It's a very prestigious award in the sort of food world. I uh, assume. Given to cooks or writers or things like that. Um, and so she's winning a James Beard Award. And so there's a part of her, of her like, on the red carpet. Uh, and one of the photographers or something says, like, you're a legend, Diana. And she goes, I know, goddammit. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a uh it's a fun watch and it, it definitely it, i think there are there are ideas that it brushes up against that it doesn't seem to want to fully take on unfortunately but um it's it, she's a fun person to spend you know 75 minutes with and also i will admit that the next day i went online and ordered one of her cookbooks uh, so sure. it it sold it sold a book um uh which is which is probably part of what it wanted to do uh there's also i didn't even get it at all like um even before a lot of the more current uh, uh trends toward this she's been very sustainability minded for uh decades she uh her home in michigan uh in the mountains of michigan mexico is she sort of first was an institute she has um, uh uh chefs both anyone can sign up both someone like me who's an amateur chef or as they show people who own like own entire restaurant groups in in new york city or portland oregon or whatever come to do her like cooking boot camps and but also part of it is the sustainability that she grows everything on her her land um and uh uh she says that uh um 
when she goes to other people's restaurants, she judges the chef by looking in their garbage can and seeing how much they're wasting. Mm. Um, she's, she's an interesting person. It's an interesting watch. It's a short watch, and it'll make you hungry for Mexican food, which I always am anyway. Yeah, I, what if you don't care for Mexican food like myself? Uh, is it at least... Uh, I, think, is, I think you will enjoy what an old coot is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that... Uh, <laughs> I, I'm reminded that that exchange with uh, her and the photographer reminds me of something that... Uh, I think of it as something from Futurama, but it, it itself is a reference to like 70s uh, black exploitation where uh, a, a woman says to Bender, like, I love you, Bender. He goes, shut up, baby, I know it. And... Uh, <laughs> Just reminds me of that. Um, speaking of, I, there was another thing I wanted to mention earlier when I was talking about the like appropriation and authenticity. Whatever she does have, to, one of the parts that does address it, she talks about like younger chefs in Mexico assuming they know the food better than she does because they learned it from their grandmothers. Sure. And she's like, "Well, I've been here cooking this food just as long as your grandmother," <laughs> you know. And it reminded me of uh, of. All the- is a part in Gone Baby Gone when uh when Casey Affleck finds out that Ed Harris's character is from Louisiana, you know, yeah. and Ed Harris has a line something like, "You might think you're more from here than I am, but I've been here longer than you've been alive." Yeah, uh, it's a great movie, by the way. Gone Baby it Gone. It is. It is. Yeah. When we talk about 2007, obviously we talk about like the big ones, uh, like Zodiac and There Will Be Blood and all that. But Gone Baby Gone was, you know, that was that year too. And it was a solid, solid film. Yeah. Um, Okay. All right. So I watched a movie called Judy and Punch, Judy and Punch, pardon me, uh, by Mira Folks, F-O-U-L-K-E-S. I don't know if it's Folks or Folks or whatever, but um, she's uh, an actress um, Mm. who... This is her her debut, her directorial debut. I'm trying to see what uh, she was in. The Crown. She was in Animal Kingdom. She's Australian. Um, Top of the Lake, uh, which I actually never saw. Um, I saw the first series. Not the yeah. not Top of the Lake. China Girl was that the? Follow-up? Oh yeah, that, yeah. I think that's the one that she that she was on. But uh, but yeah, I'll say this for any like. For any director, Judy and Punch is a solid is a very solid movie. For a directorial debut, it's it's quite an achievement. Um, there there are a lot of uh, of critics that don't care for it. I loved it um, on a number of different levels. One is that like it's a film that makes you wonder like well, how, why did she make this movie? Why? And I say that in the best possible way because. At its core, it is about uh, a marriage featuring a well-intentioned but deeply flawed to the point of being a bad person, uh, a a husband played by Damon Harriman, who uh, Hmm. known for playing Charles Manson in two separate things. Um, And then uh, the always reliable Mia Wachikowska uh, plays his wife. Huge fan. Yeah. And she's she's great. And so is he. and he has, you know, he has a lot of screen time for a guy that is uh, not very likable. And so he has to still be kind of charming and sh- suggest that maybe he's aware of, of his flaws and regrets them while still not being able to think of others. So, uh, but it's, it's a medieval, it takes place in, you know, the, the medieval 
era, um, like shortly after the, the bubonic plague. And, uh, and so this, you know, you've heard of the, the punch and Judy like Mm -hmm. puppet show. And so they run that, um, and, but his drinking has, uh, and then they call her name is Judy and his name is professor punch. And yeah. (laughs) And it's the only, obviously it's a stage name, but it's the only name that we know him as she calls him punch. Um, and so they are very well respected, but he has a drinking problem and eventually it comes to a head and some pretty terrible things happen. And it's, Okay, so it's like, all right, so at the course of the at the at the core of this is it's about a marriage and selfishness and that sort of thing. And uh so why on earth did the did the director choose to make this story? Because at the but because a, a side plot, a subplot, is that the town in which they live in are so uh obsessed with witchcraft and they want to just uh they wanna get all the get get all these witches out of here and there's this guy there's a character named uh mr frankly um who is essentially like a town elder he's not the law but he regularly intimidates the law he's able to whip up public opinion and he's played by tom budge who i know from uh being in the proposition uh many years ago and he he is insidious you hate him but also hilarious like when there is a time it, we're introduced with to, to him and the townspeople as they're about to stone potential witches. So they're, you know, they're up on this platform and he's getting the, the crowd all riled up. Everybody's getting their rocks ready. And he's, you know, going off in this purple prose talking about good and evil and all that. And, uh, and, and somebody in the audience, by the way, this movie is also very darkly funny, but uh, there's a moment where someone in the audience goes, goes, it's terrible. And he goes, yes, yes, Rodney, it is terrible. <laughs> and there's something about a guy being named Rodney that is hilarious to me. Um, and it is, it's a, I think it's a gorgeous movie to look at both with the art direction and the way it's shot, the way it's cut together. The, the score is, is like aggressive, but also playful. And it's just such a, it's such a delightful anomaly of a movie. Um, and one that I think a lot of people would enjoy. And it definitely, it, it, there's some cultural parallels. It, it condemns mob mentality of all kinds. Um, and, it, and it looks at the root of that, the, the idea of people being genuinely miserable. And of course, the ease with which someone is likely to blame their you know, problems on, on someone else. Um, and I just, uh, it just took me by surprise how much I liked this movie. And also there, there's, okay, I'm not going to say what it is. It will be clear to people when they hear it. There's a moment where a character is, is doing essentially, a, 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 he's giving a speech. And there comes a moment where he starts very clearly quoting from a movie. It's a quote that we all know. Huh. And, but it's not necessarily like I'm mad as hell. It's not that, but it's the kind of thing that like, once he starts heading down that path, you're like, Hey, wait a second. That can only be from this movie. What, why? And, and the director is smart enough to have done this on purpose. And so I'm just thinking like, what, what is going on here? And I just, the film is just, it throws so many things at the wall and, and it, for me, most, if not all of them stuck 
and I just uh, I can't recommend it highly enough. It doesn't oh. come out for it doesn't come out in the U.S. for a while, not until June. Uh, it was it came out in Australia last year, uh, but when it does come out, I, I I think people will enjoy it. I think you will enjoy it quite a bit as well. It's yeah, it's it's not. Here's here's what I'll say. It's not ravenous. Okay. But I had the same feeling watching oh, okay. it that I okay. had when I was watching Ravenous. You definitely, I think, uh, sold me on being interested uh, in it. Um, I, I was already a little bit interested by the the cast. Yeah. Um, but I have to say, in 2020 so far, we've had, we've had Gretel and Hansel, mm-hmm. Judy and Punch. Mm-hmm. What's next? Isolde and Tristan? <laughs> yeah. That's what next, right? <laughs> Clyde and Bonnie. Well, well, that's that's we'd have to go. That's you. We have to take these narratives back for the men and do a exactly. Clyde and Bonnie. That's what we go. need to do. <laughs> yeah. Um, I know. I didn't see Gretel and Hansel. I heard good things about. Oh, it. Oh yeah, I liked it. I liked. It. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, I think you you talked about it, but. Yeah. Uh, okay. So what, uh, what's your, your last film here? So I had, I had that Isolde and Tristan joke locked. I, I was really trying to turn into Dennis Miller there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what are we talking and, about? Uh, is, Isolde and Tristan? Um, and well, okay. Speaking of fantastic directorial debuts, I saw, I watched the movie last night that knocked my GD socks off. Okay. Um, it, it's, uh, it's opening, it, well, it's coming to, I think, Amazon at the end of May. It's also playing it. Drive-in theaters are open, or some of them are, uh, yeah, yeah. during all this. So it is playing at drive-ins, and I'm trying to figure out. I think the closest one to us that's open is in Montclair, which means like an hour drive each way, plus watching a movie. Here's the thing about going anywhere during the lockdown is where do you pee? Right? <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's a- Exactly. The movie's 90 minutes, but I'm talking about three and a half hours. Where am I supposed to pee if I go see this? But I, if I could, I would totally go see this in a drive-in. It's it's absolutely made for drive-ins. Uh, Shout out by, uh, oh, fuck, I already forgot his name. Uh, Andrew something. But the movie is called The Vast of Night. And uh, let's see, the director's name is Andrew Patterson. Um, and... Uh, it's it takes place in late 50s in a, a very small new mexico town it takes place roughly real time ish um in fact the opening very much reminds me of snake eyes the brian de paul <laughs> uh, in its opening uh, and i'll get back to that in a second um uh, but that's also a real time type movie so this takes place roughly real time uh the small town there's a it's a small town friday night there's a big high school basketball game the whole town it's what the whole town is there for uh but you've got the man who hosts the nighttime news like a music radio show uh, in town and you've got the young woman who works the switchboard for the, the telephone operator um and uh while everyone else is at the basketball game they start to uh, first the switchboard operator starts to hear some weird sounds on the, on the line or whatever hmm. and she calls her friend the dj guy who's a fellow sort of like popular mechanics type of uh, enthusiast nerd <laughs> type and is like hey have you ever heard anything thing like this and he goes no let me record it and play it over the air see if anyone else knows records it plays over the air starts getting calls from people who have military experience or have had uh 
loved ones who have been abducted by aliens and saying that's what this is and uh i'm, I'm only giving away like the first act of the movie it, it, right it's, uh this is just, this is all just set up to the fact that it's essentially um a small town late 50s ufo movie so again perfect for a drive-in uh but it is uh it's made with such a sure hand and such economy and yet even with its economy, it feels so fully realized, the small town. Um, mm. I'm not sure where the location is. Are they locations are they got their fantastically well, uh, fantastically well used uh, location. Um, and you open with the, uh, um, the radio guy has shown up to the basketball game before, before it started because he's supposed to provide a tape recorder to uh, record the, um, announcers because they play the next day they play a rerun on the radio stations mm-hmm. just there for that but he gets sort of roped into like helping with an electrical thing and meanwhile the cheerleaders are practicing and the basketball players are warming up and he's talking to this guy about the he's talking to the lady about, uh, who runs the the prin- school principal about the 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 electrical problem he's showing someone else how to run the tape recorder and like all this stuff is going on take like snake eyes although there is later in the movie there is a a very long um steady cam single take that's really impressively well done although definitely has at least one hidden cut in it um not the point um but the 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 timing and the choreography uh of of this guy meeting everyone in the in the gym and eventually leaving with and walking Faye, the uh, the telephone operator, to her job, uh, uh, and, and talking about uh, you know mechanics and inventions and electronics. All of this happens with such it's so smooth, so choreographed, and also it's it's astounding. This goes back to to what a great directorial debut it is. Anytime you've got a movie that has this kind of a a low budget and it's, it, it's visually it, it looks exactly there are no scene it looks exactly like it like it, 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 as if imagined out of whole cloth mm-hmm. um but uh, uh when you've got a movie with that's first time director this kind of low budget and yet all of the cast is note perfect that's i mean it's it's good performances but that's down to the director you know what i mean yeah. to, to have that much over how good the performances are and so much of the movie I keep talking about budget because it takes place in just a few locations and a lot of, a lot of scenes are just long scenes of monologues or, or two people talking. And yet they're, it's perfectly written. The writer's names are, um, uh, James Montague and Craig Sanger. Um, and, and it's all, so you get, through performance you get some stuff that's really spooky i watched it late at night um hey someone else has just joined us oh Hmm. Um, that's weird yeah are you able to boot people from this yep okay (laughs) well that's fun yeah Uh, um so uh where was i um it's not your why would it be your fault um Anyway, where was I? Uh, so yeah, I watched this late at night. It's it's very very spooky. But it, uh, um, when you've got people monologuing about aliens and abductions and stuff like that, uh, and but it's also uh, I, I think there's something more going on with it. It's, it's a movie about two young people who have a 
thirst for some something bigger something newer something true you know they're 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 looking for what is the sound but it goes back to their natural curiosity about how the world works and engineering and, and electronics in the movie i think on uh you start to realize like you start to question like how much are these two going to potentially put themselves in danger uh because they just need to get to the bottom of this uh so badly it becomes almost existential mm. um it it's such a it's anyways you know there are some movies that if i had seen them when i was 19 20 years old i i would have loved them that i wouldn't necessarily love now this movie i would have loved at any age it yeah. is it's it's very cool but it's also very effective and very well realized and uh i i honestly i watched it last night and i literally can't wait to watch it again that's why i was saying i, would, I might go to the drive drive in I, I won't because it's i can't uh hold my bladder for that long but um uh i i can't i, I cannot literally cannot recommend it highly enough it's the best movie that i i, I at least at least since sundance it's probably the best movie that i've seen uh white white day is up there i would definitely still check out a white white day if you haven't um but the vast of night is really really impressive and definitely worth your uh 90 minutes uh you know that's it's one of the things that i feel like i mean granted i know that like you you try to see as much as you can but i feel like movies like this and judy and punch are the kind of thing that not that I think they're going to be tremendously successful, but I feel like they're going to be on people's radar more because of the situation we're in yeah, right now. Yeah. Um, and so that's one of the things that it's, there aren't a lot of uh, silver linings to the current situation. Um, but to the degree that this could be considered one, I think it is one. So uh, that's, that's exciting to me because yeah, like I, I got uh, an invite or, you know, a, an email from the, the studio about it. And it looked interesting to me. Uh, but I just felt like oh, I don't really have the time for that, but, uh, I might make time now. <laughs> it sounds, it sounds pretty good. It's definitely worth time. Worth your time.